we've been doing this sermon series looking at virtues and vices. Understanding what are the vices that the church has historically for thousand plus years. Uh, that, that the church has said, hey, these are, these are dangerous directions. And what are the virtues that for that same amount of time the church has been saying, these are really good directions to move in. And the relationship between what brings death and what brings life has become clearer for us, I think, as we've looked at different things like greed and generosity, you know, or, or gluttony and satisfaction. We've had these different sermons looking at the, the two sides. This week's topic is lust. Thanks for being here. <laughs> this is why we don't post it online. I don't know if it would be way more empty or way more full if we posted in advance what the topics were. But uh, So I want to say as a bit of a prelude before we get into the text and move into the sermon, two things. One, I want to be very careful with my words this morning because I do feel that uh, despite much maybe wisdom that the church has had in uh, the area of sexuality, and we could debate about how much wisdom that is versus a lack of wisdom, I think there has been wisdom. There's certainly been a lot of discernment, conversation, prayer, a lot of life lived in reflection on the body and sexuality in the church. A lot of reflection and a lot of time spent thinking and praying. But you wouldn't know it from the average sermon that ends up on TikTok or your Instagram reels where you just see people saying wild and reckless things about human sexuality, often from a pulpit. And by the way, if you get negative religious information on your TikTok or algorithmic feed, it's likely there because you keep paying attention to it, and it will keep giving you bad news about religion until you stop paying attention to it. There's just enough people in the world that there will always be bad news related to your hobbies, and bad news keeps attention longer, and attention is how advertisers, you know, make it all free. So that to say, I guess three points. One, don't trust your algorithm to show you what is true and not true in the world. It is not neutral. Two, uh, Christians have, that said, been reckless often when talking about sex, and that has led to harm for people. Anxiety, shame, uh, repression, and I don't want this sermon to be a careless sermon about sexuality. Uh, and so I want to be very careful with my words, and I, I hope that you hear that in my spirit as I'm talking about this. Um, and, and that, please, if I do say something stupid, which there's a good chance there'll be at least one thing in this sermon that's just uh, said recklessly, uh, I ask for your grace, and, and please feel free to carry on a conversation with me personally, should that occur. Second thing, or third thing, depending on how we're counting these, uh, the other thing is that I, I do want to talk about lust, and I want to name it as clearly as we can, uh, because that which we cannot name becomes tyranny over us. You, know, you only have to think back to that classic sacred text, Harry Potter, to know that he who must not be named gathers darkness in the shadows. When we can't talk about something, when our, our, our nerves flare up at the mere suggestion of a concept or a word, it is evidence that something has power over us. That there is, you could call it an idea or a spirit that is trying to rule from the shadows. And if it were named, 
it may lose some of its power, and so the last thing it wants is to be clearly articulated or clearly named. We know this in therapy. You know, you go into your own story to name pain in your past, and once named, reconciliation can begin. Often, for people, it can happen quite automatically. The same is true in spiritual traditions, that when you can name a spirit, you can then tell the spirit what to do and where to go. You see this in the scriptures. And so I don't know how all this works, but I suspect that part of speaking about lust in a culture like ours that is just in the throes of um, sexual change, revolution, be it good or be it bad, is to be discerned, and I won't be taking sides in this, but just to name that there is a difference between lust and how the Bible teaches us to treat ourselves and others as it relates to our sexuality. And so I'm going to try to name some of that in this sermon today, even recognizing that that may be uncomfortable, uh, and I just invite you to enter into that discomfort with me, because I promise you it's not particularly comfortable for me either. So we'll, we'll all be in this together. Uh, we're going to focus on just a short text from the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the core teachings of Jesus. You probably could say his core uh, kind of manifesto about life in God's world. So I invite you, if you would like to open up a text, to open it up to Matthew chapter 5. You can also just listen along as I read. The context here is that Jesus has been saying that he is not here to abolish or get rid of the law, the uh, way of living passed down from Moses to the Israelites and through their culture and history saying, I'm not here to destroy that, I'm not here to erase that or silence that, I'm here to fulfill that, I'm here to take that to its proper ending. And the way he's doing that, so far in this examples, is uh, just to turn up the volume on everything, to turn up the heat. So he says, uh, right before the example we're going to give, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, don't even call someone a fool. Like, don't even get mad in traffic. You know, that's the level I'm calling you to. So he's taking examples of things that seem difficult but reasonable, and he's saying, no, 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 I'm going to make these near unreasonable and impossible to show you what it's actually like to live in God's world. So we'll be in verse 27, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. One other thing, depending on your translations, you will see a different word in verse 29. Some of your translations may see a whole body thrown into hell, Whoa! Some of you will see full body thrown into Gehenna. Huh? Uh, Just to be clear, and I want to state some of this so that when we're reading the text, we don't need to pause. Uh, The word there is the word in in Greek, Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna was a place. It's a little confusing. Geh is actually just the the word for valley. And henna means a hinnom. So it literally is saying the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, valley, Hena, Hinnom. Okay, so when Jesus is speaking, he says, for your body to be thrown into the valley of Hinnom. I'm sure that clarifies it for everybody. It's like, beautiful. what kind of valley is Hinnom? Uh, it was a valley where uh, one of the uh, kings of Israel, uh, King Ahaz, sacrificed his children to a foreign god. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 28. 
And then as a place where such darkness had occurred, where even a king who knows God would sacrifice his own children to a foreign god, uh, sort of becomes a place that represents great spiritual darkness. Um, and I believe by the time of Jesus had become a perpetual uh, burning space, a space where fire and garbage went to be burned, so sort of a smoldering pit of nothing, just a, a burning valley of waste. Uh, but, I mean, I just think it's helpful to not hear that as literally just the word hell. Like, it's helpful to have the vision in mind and the kind of image in mind that Jesus is speaking of. And, and what that means, we'll get to later in the sermon, but I just wanted to set that up for the reading. Does that make sense? We feel like we got the context we need? Okay. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verse 27, from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. Whereas I tell you that everyone looking at a married woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, if your right eye causes you to falter, remove it and fling it away from you, for it is expedient that you, for you, for it is expedient for you, that one of your members should perish, rather than your whole body should be thrown into the valley of Hinnom. And if your right hand causes you to falter, cut it off and fling it away from you. For it is expedient for you that one of your members should perish rather than that your whole body should depart into the valley of Hinnom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whew, thanks be to God indeed. There's another verse I was thinking about reading. I uh, decided just for simplicity's sake to keep it to one, but if you're interested in a, a good companion verse that uh, talks about lust, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You could read the whole thing, but especially verses 12 to 20. I'll just flag that, and if you listen to the podcast later, you could find that again and, and visit that, because there's a lot of scriptures that talk about lust. But I prefer to go to Jesus, because he's our anchor. I really prefer if we can go to the Sermon on the Mount, because that is the mission statement from Jesus. And in the mission statement from Jesus about the revolution, he names explicitly lust. Uh, The word that he uses there is the Greek word epithymeo. Epithymeo. So it's two words. Epi means to focus on. You're putting your full focus on something. What is it? Thymos. Thymeo. The thymos is a passionate desire. So that the literal wording is, anyone who looks upon, is focused on with passionate desire, a woman, in this case a married woman, he has committed adultery in his heart. But Jesus also uses this word when he says he longs to eat with his disciples. I am focused passionately on eating this meal with you. So it's not only a negative thing, but when used of a person, it becomes a negative thing. You can greatly desire to eat a meal with a person. That's not lust. 
But when you greatly desire a person themselves or their body or when you turn them into an object that you want to consume, that you want to bring close, that you want to cling to, that you want to consume, that is now treating them not as a person but as an object, as something which you can claim, grasp, consume. The word lust, which is the word that was used in church history to talk about this, is a Latin word. And it uh, comes from the same idea as to desire, or the word for appetite. So there's a craving element to lust, a consumptive element to lust. The main metaphor used in church history for lust is the metaphor of fire. We see fire in Dante's Inferno. When Dante's describing lust, it's a fiery image. But even here in Jesus' words, Lust is described as similar to a fire. It is better for you to pluck out an eye and throw it away and enter into life with one eye than for your whole body to be on fire. And I think that makes sense because personally, I don't like it when any of me is on fire. Like, I don't like it when I burn my hand. I don't like it when I burn my foot. Thank you. I see some people like nodding like, that makes sense. I don't, I don't like being on fire in part. You know, my whole body on fire? No, thank you. So what's, I mean, that seems obvious, right? Nobody in here is a big fan of being on fire, so what are we talking about? Well, when Christians have talked about this, I feel like our assumption, at least in in my generation, was that this must be primarily, fundamentally, maybe only speaking about some future judgment. That if, if we don't tame lust, someday God will take my soul and throw it into hell because I didn't pluck out my eye. Is that the reading that a lot of us would have been raised kind of feeling in our body? (laughs) Sort of feeling, maybe no one said it, but it was sort of this thing Jesus said that's like, if you don't cut off your hand, you'll be on fire forever. And we're like, okay, cool. And then we just don't do anything about it. I feel like if we take it seriously, you should be lopping off hands, most likely. Like, you know, if it's going to be hell forever, pluck out an eye, right? That seems obvious. But maybe a sign that we have never really taken it quite that literally. Maybe we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I I don't know that we ever have. I have found it very helpful recently in meditating on this text and learning more about how God's kingdom works in our life to read this text less concerned about a future after death, although I think we should always keep that in mind, but much more concerned with a very present reality. Okay, this is like vulnerable. But I just got to confess, in my life, 37 years old, I have lusted. (laughs) I know. Look, it's like, it would be, I would really like it if I could just be like, I haven't. Like, there's probably someone in this room who's like, no, actually, not my thing. Uh, I have. And let me tell you, it's never made me feel great. Like when I was in, you know, 19-year-old guy and walking around school and being like, oh, that girl's so attractive. Oh, look at her butt. Like it's such a weird thing. It's embarrassing, you know. It's like, what are you doing? Like so carnal and animalistic. Like, oh, hey, baby, you look really attractive. You're hot. Like it's just so strange to do. It's embarrassing to confess that you lust. But I have, and let me tell you, all it's ever done is made me want something I can't have. 
that's not fun, right? Because, like, like, I don't lust after my wife. I love my wife. My wife and I do things I'm not going to talk about, you know? Like, the, the fire's there, but you don't... It's not like a lust. It's not consumptive. It's not, it's not consuming. It's not an appetite. It's a totally different thing. It's love. It's love. It's about, I want you to be happy. I want to bring pleasure to someone else I love. I want to be tightly bonded. I want to be closer with someone I love. But lust is the opposite. Lust is distraction. Lust is the infinite, right? We've talked a lot about the love that brings us closer to God and one another, and the infinite distractions that lead us away. And lust, it never satisfies. If you lust another person after another person, you'll never probably get the desire you have. If you got what you wanted, it would likely have catastrophic effects on other relationships and on yourself. It, it, you know, this isn't a fantasy. You can't just go and have sex with someone and have nothing else happen after that. Every action we do has a chain reaction. You yell at someone in traffic, it has a chain reaction. So you never get to just indulge your lust and then walk away smiling. It's never satisfied. That's why it's a fire. The endless pursuit of sexual pleasure, which looks different, I think, very often for men and women, and I'll let you apply it to your own life as you do, but that desire to consume someone, to bring someone close, to have something for yourself, to, to use someone for your own satisfaction, that never can satisfy. The, en the endless options of sexual imagery presented on the internet, presented in modern media, will never satisfy because you never get to actually have it. You only get to see it. You only get to watch it, but you never get to have it. You can never be satisfied because it never gets into you in a way that can bring satisfaction. And that creates a feeling of fire. That creates a sense of burning that you're longing for something you can't have. You're always looking for something you can't consume. You're like a, a, a fool surrounded by the vision of a feast, thinking that you're feasting, but you're not. It's just all sugar. It's just all icing. There's no material. There's no calories. There's nothing that will give to you. It's just an endless distraction of nothingness. And if you live that way, your psyche will feel ablaze. Your mind will feel distracted. For men, when you see a woman, she will cease to be a person to you and become instead an object of your lust. And I'm not sure how it works for women, but I get the sense that there's some ways that for you also, your perception can be shifted if you lust after another person. And so in the end, we do not get even that which we desire and we end up feeling psychologically and spiritually ablaze, on fire, stuck in a, in, a, in a pattern that leads us to a place a lot like the Valley of Hinnom, to a place that feels like hell. Okay, so <clears throat> what does this one look like? in our present day. Let's try to diagnose lust a little bit in our culture before we move to its opposite. Uh, I feel like one of the biggest challenges we have with talking about lust in our modern moment is that we are not honest about lust. 
So I'm just going to try to say five very quick, honest thoughts about lust. And I'll try to go quickly, because the last thing we want to do is talk about lust for too long. Let's get to the good stuff on the other side. But let's be honest about lust. Okay, number one, we've got a culture that's, that's obsessed with sex, or so it seems to think, right? Advertising everywhere, sexual advertising. TV shows, sexual TV shows. Like, you go to Netflix, it's just all sex shows sometimes. Like, and I'm not like a pervert. Like, it's not like the algorithm's like, you'll love all these dirty shows, Kevin. It's just everything I see is like, have you heard of this show about how they had sex a different way? Wow! It's like, I'm so boring to me. But, you know, it's just like sex, 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 sex. Except the statistics come out, and it turns out people today are having less sex. That's interesting. We're a culture that talks so much about sex, except I think that for most people, the idea of like random sex, experimental sex, all these new kinds of sex, I think for most people, the feeling is like, mm, uh, ew. You know, like a stranger's tongue in my tongue? To like, no, I'm fine. Like, really? You're not all responding too quickly with that. I don't know if it's because we don't want to admit that it's... People are wearing masks in public right now, you know, like... It's, uh, I feel like it's a slightly different time. It's not like sex in the city these days. It's like safety in the city. Am I safe? You know, like everyone's afraid. It's just a different time. And so this illusion that everybody out there is just having all this great sex all the time, everybody but you, is a lie. It's not true. And the sooner we can say, oh, there's a narrative that someone's telling us about how sex is the most important thing in the world, except it's not true, should lead us naturally to ask, well, who's telling us that narrative and why? And what profit do they have to make off of us thinking that we need to infinitely be thinking about sex all the time when really it's just a normal part of life that some people engage with. People do it in different kinds of ways, but it is not the be-all and end-all of our world. Second thing we're not honest about with sex is that sex, anecdotally, I have only heard of sexual encounters that people consider kind of like easy, breezy sexual encounters. I always hear that one of the people are hurt at the end. Even the most casual of sexual encounters, there is someone who's more invested. There is someone who hoped it meant more than it did. And so a second thing about lust is we talk as if people can have lustful encounters without harm, except every encounter that I've ever heard about from someone, and maybe they're only telling me because they're hurt, but everyone I've ever heard anecdotally resulted in someone feeling used. And I think we should be honest about that. We also should be honest about the fact that lust naturally disintegrates a person. The more you live in lust, the more you yourself will disintegrate. People's psyches become disintegrated. They stop understanding who they are or feeling they have a coherent narrative about themselves. Sex is a porous act. It is so porous that new life wah, comes up from the act. Two people engage in sex and a new person comes out of the middle. That's a porous activity. And if you don't do that well, other things will happen, including the breakdown of our own bodies. There is no way to engage in lustful action without it having a consequence. Everything we do matters. Everything we do in our lives has some byproduct. Nothing we do has no byproduct. 
and we should be honest. And I mean that. You eat an apple, it's in your body. You go for a walk, the air is in your body. What you see, it affects you. You call your mom, she'll be happy. You know, everything we do has a byproduct. Why would sex not? It's materialist, modernist deception, and it's putting us in a real bind. Okay. So people are like, wow, I'm ready for the sermon to be done. I've still got two more points. Uh, fourth, it does, it, lust damages society. And I know I brought up the S word here, but like, we should think about society. Everyone we know is living in society, and I don't know if you've noticed, it's not going great right now. People are really having a rough time in our streets. And what we could really use is some like safe communities where people feel loved and valued and not like they need to engage in sexual action to receive or earn or deserve love and value. We want people in communities where people who are married and have families bring stability. We don't want a time of instability for children when people are not doing well in the streets. We need to surround one another again and value some things that can bring stability so that we can catch our breath enough to take care of one another and maybe even take care of our neighbors. I think like pursuing the bliss of lust is just not the highest priority right now. And maybe some honoring of marriage, some honoring of healthy expressions of sexuality, some honoring of well, whatever the opposite of lust is, true sacrificial love that people can share, maybe it's time that we do that. And beyond society, the amount of damage, and this is just my last thing on us not being honest about lust, I just had to say this stuff before we move into the good stuff, is that lust is, is actively destroying the world. And I'm not going to say too much about this, and I know there are people of all different ages and, and temperaments in this room, but like, we're just deceiving ourselves if we think that lust is not causing uncalculable pain in this world. The amount of people kidnapped and enslaved because of lust, we don't even know the numbers and we couldn't count. Real people and, and, and very, and young people. Like in this kind of like laissez-faire attitude about internet pornography, if you were to if you were to attempt to understand how many people's lives have been destroyed by pornography on the internet and otherwise, but like just the internet, and I'm not just talking like the, the men and women who look at it, whose lives it, uh, it, it kind of turns them away from communally seeking something good and into shame and isolation. That's a huge number, but I'm not even thinking about them. I'm thinking about the people in the films, people whose, whose bodies have been uploaded to the internet without their consent, the exploitation of these digital devices to expose people, using people's photos or videos as, as shaming tactics or leverage. I mean, if, if we were to try to attempt to see the amount of pornography that has existed on the internet, just as like, say each screen was just this big and we just wanted to see in a wall how many people have been damaged by it, the, the sky, it would be such a skyscraper you wouldn't see the city of Hamilton. It would block out the sun. Why don't we take that seriously? Why do we pretend that lust is just this kind of playful pseudo-vice? Why don't we acknowledge that it is 
leading to death at every level, from the personal, to the communal, to the societal, to the global. I'm not even saying that people have to stop looking at it. I'm just saying a little honesty, a little honesty, would help us move forward. It's not about shame. It's not about like each of us individually feeling bad. It's about us just recognizing what is actually going on so that we can have an honest and gracious conversation. Okay, wow. Are we all done with that now? Whew. Okay, last thing then. It's all unsatisfying. Lust is unsatisfying. So what, what does the church in history offer us as a counterpoint. If lust is the infinite potential of unsatisfaction, infinite directions moving into darkness, what calls us forward into the light? Uh, the church is often pegged as the opposite side of lust, a word that is not very popular these days, chastity. For some of you, when I say chastity, you're picturing like chastity belts from like old cartoons, like metal belts that you know, I don't know if anyone's got that image. That's what's in my mind because I'm an idiot raised by TV. But, uh, but chastity, chast means uh, set apart. It means holy or pure. Again, try not to read into these words too much anxiety from modern rhetoric. Just take them as words. Pure means see-through, clear, exactly what it is. Chastity is showing something to someone, and, and what you're showing them is exactly what it is. There's no deception. There's no illusion. There's no hidden agenda. When you look at someone with lust, there's a hidden agenda. You want to take something from them with that sight. When you look at someone with chast eyes, you are looking at them for their sake. You are showing them exactly the attentive gaze that you wish for them to have, that your eyes are seeing clearly. That's been pegged as the opposite of lust. Uh, I've shared with some of you before this example, but when I first went to youth group was the first time I ever got like a kind of, uh, I guess a bit of a tutoring on the idea of chastity. Not that some kids didn't make out in the closet at youth group, I'm sure they did. Um, but it was the first place I ever went to that had a culture of chastity. And, and what I should give you a kind of a heads up just for some context, I was in grade 12, when I went to youth group. Up until grade 12, I was raised in the Lutheran church, which meant that we just said like, uh, don't have sex until you're married. That's our full ethic on sexuality. That was kind of all they taught us was like, here's a rule and good luck. But when I was being, you know, raised in this culture, I got lots of words about sexuality. There was a teaching to me about sex. The teaching that the world gave me about sex and that formed my mind as a child was honestly probably something like American Pie. Like a, just a stupid movie that happened to release when I was at a particular age. And so I and everyone else I knew went and watched this stupid nothing movie. And the writers of that movie had a stupid sexual script that they probably had never even investigated themselves. And they exploited people then to tell their story of nothingness. And I watched it, and because it was on a big screen, and because it made us laugh, I thought, oh, that's good. I mean, and honestly, how many of us think to your primal kind of years, 
the script that you picked up around sexuality, how many of us, was it just some dumb movie? Some book we read, some TV show we liked that imprinted on us, just like animals, even if we didn't notice. And I didn't notice that for years, now I wasn't like, a, I wasn't like a, a monster or something. I wasn't out trying to like sleep with everybody. I just always wanted a girlfriend and I always wanted more and, and you know, guys want to have sex. That's what's important. You know, I just was an idiot because I'd been brainwashed by a dumb movie. And I went to youth group and it was the first place I'd ever gone that explicitly said, that's not how we treat each other. You know, they said, when you're at youth group, these are your siblings in Christ. And don't, you know, try to sleep with your siblings. Duh. And it was like, oh, that's not a metaphor for them. They really meant it. Like, these are your siblings in Christ. If you wanted to date one of your siblings, maybe that would be okay. You see, the metaphor falls apart. But, <laughs> but a good counter-corrective, you know, just a good way to lean. Think of each other as family. Think of each other as people you love. Think about people, not that you're here to consume something from, not that you want something from. Think of these people as someone that you want to give care to, give attention to. And you know what was so funny? I wanted a girlfriend all through high school. Just I would always try to have a girlfriend if I got dumped a lot. I'd get a lot of girlfriends, then I'd get dumped a lot, so I'd try to get another girlfriend, I'd get dumped a lot. Vicious pattern, totally unsatisfying. I went to youth group, and you know what I got? Not a girlfriend, I just got female attention. And you know what? That was enough. Turns out that's what I wanted all along. 17-year-old boy doesn't want a girlfriend. It's like responsibilities. He doesn't want to remember an anniversary. He just wants a girl to look him in the eyes and tell him that he's nice and that she thinks he's cool and he's, he'll live off that for a month and a half. Like, but this is the thing, like we think we want this, oh, we want sex, we want lust, but we don't. You know what we want? A hug. We want someone to see us, to give us attention, to embrace us. One of my favorite things lately is during Compline, when we chant psalms on Wednesday nights, we'll often be really like close to each other, and sometimes my arm will just be like brushed up against someone else's arm. And it's chast, I promise you. I'm not chanting a song being like, this forearm touch, so good. Like, no, it's chast, it's clean, it's pure. It's just like, wow, I love being close to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love singing to God with these other people that I love. And I love that there is a space in our city, a space where we come together and we freely extend love and touch and attention without ulterior motive. I'm convinced that if the church became known for this, we would see people that are searching for touch and love and affection in so many places coming into the church simply to be embraced and seen and loved without needing to do anything else to earn it, because that is what so many of us are actually longing for. Okay, I know this has been a bit of a long sermon, probably to be expected given the topic, but do you guys mind if I take like three to five more minutes to wrap things up? Okay. If you say no, I will stop. It's a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure. <clears throat> okay, so what about the church today? One of the challenges has been when the church today talks about lust 
and love or lust and chastity is that at the end they then say, and so provided that you are straight and married, here's your good news. And otherwise, bye. You know, like it's just not, we don't really have a holistic vision of sex, probably because from much of history, almost everybody was at least presenting straight and, and married. Um, but in our modern world, there are more complexities. And I think the church is going to need to ask all of us to participate in the project of pursuing a new way forward for chastity, for the purity of spirit, and for then the appropriate space for sexual expression. And I'm not interested in, in a sermon on a Sunday morning in telling everybody precisely what those lines are, because I think that the spirit of God will do a better job of that if we're seeking together. But maybe I can just offer five very quick little points on this, on, on maybe what the church could consider today as she discerns a way forward. Okay, the first thing, uh, whether we like it or not, sexuality is an important part of the witness of the church. Since the very beginning, the church's sexual ethic has been a major feature in her witness to the world. In an early Christian writing, was written trying to articulate who the Christians were um, between the second and third century somewhere. So this is very early stuff. It says, uh, they marry, the Christians marry, as do all. They beget children, but do not destroy their offspring. One of the things in the ancient world was called exposure. If you had a child you didn't want, often a deformed child, a, a girl, uh, you would leave the child for the elements in the Greco-Roman world. You just leave them outside to die or be picked up as a slave. Christians did not participate in exposing their children. They were known for actually gathering exposed children and bringing them into their homes. So the one thing that Christians were known for was not abandoning our children and actually taking on the suffering of other children into their homes. So it says they, they beget children but do not destroy their offspring. This is the line that I, I love. They have a common table but not a common bed. In the Greek and Roman world, common bed was not uncommon. All this new stuff. Hey, isn't the world crazy? We have open marriages now. Boring. No, I think open marriage is a scam, and I think it's stupid, and I think it's a quick road to divorce. That's my real opinion. And I know this sounds super harsh. I'm just saying for Christians. I'm saying this as a Christian. I'm not saying this as a person. I'm not saying this of my neighbor who's not a Christian. They can do whatever they want. I'm saying as a Christian, speaking to another Christian, if they say, I'm thinking about opening up my marriage, I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea. Like, this is not rocket science. Every Christian ever, for all of human history, would say this. So I'm just trying to not say something that every Christian ever in human history would disagree with. Okay, second thing. How does the church live today? We should discern honestly. We should discern honestly. Every person, as a person, is going to have to ask God how they live faithfully in their body. I think that we can trust the Spirit to guide that discernment when done in community, with scripture, with prayer. But it will be something that each of us will have to discern, and if we can do it honestly, it'll take us a long way. There will be normative wisdom that we ought to follow. There is normative wisdom in the church. The normative wisdom of the church is that sex belongs best within a covenant of marriage. That is the normative wisdom of the church. I'm certainly open to discussing and discerning with people where that doesn't fit or perhaps where there are exceptional circumstances. I think that's perfectly faithful. But we shouldn't throw away normative wisdom 
that has gotten us here. Whatever the church does will have to be counter-cultural because we live in a culture in which absolutely everything is now permissible, and that's fine. Everything is permissible, even for the Christian, as St. Paul says. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. We're so far beyond, like, do I have permission to do something? We're talking about, like, what leads to life? What makes you happy? What coheres our world? What makes us feel joy? So we're going to have to move in a countercultural direction, away from the infinite towards the finite. And finally, whatever the church comes up with is going to have to be something that's actually satisfying. A sexual ethic, an understanding of chastity that feels satisfying to us as people, that, that actually gives us what we need, and not just satisfying for the straight married couples, but a satisfying way to live in chastity that is satisfying for those who are single, for those who are divorced, for those who are widowed, for those who are queer. It's going to have to be something that leads to a flourishing life for every person who is seeking God with a sincere heart. And I don't think that that's an impossible task. I think we've just been a little afraid to try because we haven't been allowed to talk about it and because for a long time maybe the words have been too reckless, too careless. But now's a time to find ourselves again, to find some language, and to begin to discern a new way forward. A new way forward that will, of course, always be linked to the way that we got here. Okay, last thing. Let's get back to Jesus and hell. Because some of you are like, you still haven't answered, though. Like, should I pluck out my eye? Like, am I, what's up with the hell thing in the, the, the Valley of Hinnom? Everything that we've just said, I do believe that there's truth in it and, and should be weighed and discerned. But let me back all the way up to say, Jesus did not come to earth to give us a message of sexual health. Jesus didn't come to point us to virtues and away from vices. Jesus came to save us. Not to save us after we sorted out our vices, not to save us after we turned towards virtue, just to pluck us from all of our fires and to truly rescue us by sheer gift alone freely given as we are. When Jesus turns up the volume on anger and says, you know, don't, not, don't murder, don't be angry. When Jesus says, no, don't not just like looking in lust, but don't commit lust in your heart. He's turning up the volume in part to show us how free we could be if we lived fully virtuous lives. But he's also doing it to show us that all of us will fail to live virtuous lives. Like, like we're not gonna be chaste. We can turn and try, and we ought to, but like, we're not. We're gonna lust, and we're gonna be greedy, and we're gonna be gluttons. I mean, God, this week after Halloween, Lord of mercy, we're gonna be gluttons. These mini bars are deceptive. You know, like, we're going to sin. It's not a big problem. Like, it's actually, it's gonna be okay as long as we know that Christ is the Lord of grace and mercy. Hey, I mean, like, then it's just like, oh man, I've been so stressed about not sinning, and it turns out all I had to do was acknowledge that I am sinning. And then I get to be forgiven, and then I'm psychically well again. You know, he's not saying, hey, I don't want you to be on fire, so stop sinning. He's saying, I don't want you to be on fire, so just wake up. Wake up, you're on fire right now. Pluck out the eye if you've got to pluck it out. Throw out the phone. Get rid of the computer. 
Quit your job. Like, do whatever act you've got to do to be psychically liberated. Don't live your whole life feeling like you're on fire. If you're mentally feeling unwell, cut off anything you can, throw it into the fire, and go be free. But even if you're currently enslaved, Jesus loves you. How good is Jesus? We don't need a gospel like that. This gospel easily could have been, and once you do some good things, you'll be loved. It's not. I think we forget how good it is. It's like, you will be a sinner. And you're like, maybe I'm not. And Jesus is like, let me just turn up the heat. If you look at a woman lustfully, you're a sinner. And then we're like, "Uh uh-oh. Then he's like, good, and now that you're honest, I love you. I thought recently that Jesus watches me scroll on my phone for 40 minutes like a monkey, just like, just like, just on my phone, just on the couch, just like, ah, just scrolling. And he's there like eternally, right? Just watching me for 40 minutes scroll. And at the end when I'm like, oh, he's still there and he's like, love him. (laughs) That's the good news. And so let that be our reminder that Christ has come to enter the fire. And he entered fully into our fire in his crucifixion, his entering into the deep places, through the valley, into death itself in order to rescue us from all of our passions and vices which have ensnared us. And he has liberated all people from the power of sin and death. And so glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ, who rescues us from our fire by your passion. Would you guide us from this place of flame into a life that is pure and good and true and filled with satisfaction and peace. Amen.